I am joined, as always, by Joseph Wang of FedGuide.com, and we have a very special guest today. We have Edward Chancellor, investor and a noted author. His most recent book, The Price of Time, uh, is a fantastic uh, book about the history and perhaps the future of interest rates. And Joseph and I, we are just delighted to have Edward here. So thank you so much for joining, Edward. Uh, thanks for having me. First question, Edward, I want to ask just to get at the heart of the matter of the book is, who is John Bull and why can he not handle 2%? So John Bull is the eponymous Englishman, the sort of archetypal Englishman. And there isn't really an equivalent in America, sort of Uncle Sam doesn't quite cut the mustard, but it's probably as close as you can get, or you might say John John Doe. <laughs> anyway, so John Bull is this eponymous Englishman, and he's meant to be a sort of model of common sense. <laughs> so take no nonsense. However, uh, the 19th century English uh, financial journalist, Walter Badgett, uh, uh, writing about markets, had this saying that he liked to repeat, John Bull can stand many things, but he cannot stand 2%. Faced with a loss of income, he must either accept that he is less well-off or he must take more risk. I'm paraphrasing. And then Badgett goes on to say, well, what are the sort of risks he takes? So when interest rates 2%, he, um, he, he, he goes after what he calls a canal to Kamchatka, which is a reference to the canal mania in Brit in England of the late 18th century, in a railway to watch it, uh, which is actually a reference to the railway mania of the 1840s. And then he then he also says in um, selling selling ice skates to the torrid zone, which is actually quite an interesting reference. That's actually a reference to the period of very low interest rates in the early 19th century when Britain was fighting the French and the gold standard was suspended and the Bank of England was just printing out paper money and interest rates were kept too low. And even though the, the English were at war, uh, they were cut off from the continent and they got very excited in sort of in, in emerging markets. And they start, and the, the rumor had it, the city myth was that the merchants were selling ice skates to the torrid zone into you know in, into south america where obviously there was no ice in other words what he's saying there is is your is that not only are valuate not not only are sort of, do people chase speculative valuations but they also even at times of sort of easy money or very low interest rates pursue um sort of chimerical business ventures which which you know, we've obviously seen quite a lot of lot of in the last few years. Oh, absolutely, I mean we see that low interest rate phenomenon very clearly. In fact, I think it's basically a policy of some central banks uh, post Great Financial Crisis to keep interest rates low to kind of fuel speculation and wealth effects. Uh, what I really like about your book, The Price of Time, is that it's such a scholarly book. There's so much history. There's so much research that goes into it. And in fact, you start from the very beginning. I just where where did we first see interest rates, and uh, as a as a building block to, to where we are today? Can you talk a little bit about the historical origins of interest rates and just kind of what role that that it was played? Obviously, it's been very controversial throughout time. Uh, some people think of it as you wrote as a share of profits. Some of them were uh, basically uh, something that's unjust and, and so forth. But um, it's a very complicated and interesting history. Yeah. So first of all, just I'd say I distinguish between interest rates, which is the charge, the percentage charge on a on a loan, and um, and interest as a phenomenon, you know, of what you, of, you know, what of, of the act of charging, if you will. Now, interest it, it goes back to um, prehistorical period, but before there's any before we have any human records. And why do we know that? I think we know that because you find in the etymology, in the ancient languages, the various words for interest, um, 
are, are linked to livestock. They're linked to uh, to calves, to to the offspring of livestock, to calves, to 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 lambs, to to uh, kid goats. And I think what we can tease out from that is that before any historical record, farmers were lending their property, um, their livestock, and probably their grain too, to other farmers who were in need. And then they were charging uh, the fruit of that, of that lending. And then when we get into sort of ancient Mesopotamia, we find other functions of interest, which very similar to what we find today. For instance, Mesopotamia you know, has the, these early cities with large populations running into the hundreds of thousands, and they have housing markets. Now, you can't have a housing market unless you have an interest, because unless, you're, unless you have a discount on the value of some future service, like for, you know, a house you live in, and it's delivering its service over a number of years, and if you rent it out, that rental stream of income is coming over a number of years. So let's say you have a house without any, and you have no discount rate. How much is that house worth? Well, that house is actually technically worth an infinity, because if it carries on providing a service ad infinitum, then you've got an infinite stream of income going out into the future, and you just add it all up together. And so that would mean every little hovel was worth a trillion dollars more. <laughs> so it doesn't make any sense. So you have to have something to, to discount the future services, the future stream of income back to the present. You also find in ancient Mesopotamia that, you know, you have small businesses and those small businesses uh, are borrowing money. And you're not going to have a market for lending money. For, why should one person lend another person their property unless there's some reward. Well, you know, there's a certain risk that they're not going to get the money back. So one way or another, you've got to charge for your for the loan of a property. And as I mentioned, there's got to be a little risk premium in it in case that loan doesn't get repaid. And so in ancient Mesopotamia, for instance, we find that maritime commercial loans, uh, which are obviously riskier because the... Um, there's a risk of shipwreck, that they charge a higher rate than other types of loans. And we find that, um, you know, we find, for instance, that barley loans, which are, uh, which are presumably being either, they're either consumer loans or they're used for, you know, as, as, as seed, as seed uh, grain. We also find they charge higher rates of interest. So we find very early on a, a little risk premium in the in in the in in uh, of interest. And I mean, my sort of general argument—I'm not original. My general argument is that you know, life being sort of nasty, brutish, and short, we prefer you know our current pleasures to those in an uncertain future. And given that we live in a world of scarce resources. And capital is not infinite. Um, you know, people in this era of very low interest rates <laughs> came to the, you know, had this illusion that capital was free. Well, no, it's not, and resources are scarce. Given the scarcity of resources, and given our inherent preference for a bird in the hand, you know, something you have now as opposed to a bird, uh, two in the bush, we we, we will always have. Uh, an inherent rate of interest. It's, it's something within human nature, I think. And that was before the time of central banks too. So it's something that, you know, like you mentioned, human nature comes up with it. It's something that is uh, almost quote unquote well, natural. So look, we've got five millennia of history and the first central bank is the, is the Dutch Wiesel Bank, the Bank of Amsterdam, Amsterdam, which is created in the early 17th century. Uh, and really central banks, you know, the Federal Reserve doesn't get you know, started till 1914 or 13. And so really we've, you know, the central bank aspect of and their role in 
in in in interest setting is really very new. I mean, the you know we always talk about now uh, monetary policy as it and we make interest rates and monetary policy sort of more or less synonymous. Well, you know, I mentioned the book. The first mention of a so to speak active monetary policy is actually in in the mid nineteen twenties. Reference to what the um, the Dutch central bank is doing at that time. And we're living at that stage in an era which is no longer a sort of pure gold standard. Um, I don't, there was never actually quite a, a real pure gold standard, but we, we'd moved further away from interest rates being set automatically within a central bank, just determined by the amount of bullion that was in the uh, vaults of the central bank at any stage. Is a consequence of a move to fiat currency away from a gold standard that interest rates can be set? In other words, what would happen if a active activist central banker wanted to change interest rates or manipulate interest rates during a gold standard? Well, you see, the gold standard system was posited uh, on a commitment to redeem your uh, paper notes in a certain, um, with a certain quantity of gold. And that is the, um, that's a legal commitment. And so we always had um, credit being created, sort of, if you will, a sort of uh, an inverted pyramid of credit created off a base of gold. And, but what would happen is that once you create too much credit money, and that leads to a large amount of demand and to rising commodity prices, and at least in theory, and this was observed you know, back in the mid 18th century by the Scottish philosopher economist, David Hume, at least in theory, if you create too much, much money, paper money, credit money, you create an inflation, your, the, the, the terms of trade of a country deteriorate, the gold then leaves the country. And as the gold leaves the country, the central bank sees the amount of gold in its vaults decreasing, and they see that the coverage of their paper notes is, is inadequate. And that's when they start, they, you don't need an economist, there are no models, <laughs> you just say, hang on a sec, what is, you know, what is our coverage? What is our paper coverage relative to our bullion? And then you say, okay, we're going to hike rates. And and in the nineteenth, you know, I think in the nineteenth, I don't know when it started, but the the um, they used to have a flag on top of the Bank of in England that would notify the ships in the docks of um, what the rate of interest was. And the gold ship <laughs> sometimes a gold ship would be sailing towards America, and they would see that the Bank of England had raised rates and the ship would then turn around and bring the money, the gold back to England. So you can see that the um, the, the sort of the money supply and the, the coverage of the money supply or the co coverage of the credit of the paper money by gold more or less automatically determines the rate of interest. There's, there's, no, there's no sort of human agency. But once you get rid of the um, gold standard, then of course you enter a world in which the base rate, the policy rate is determined by, um, you know, by politicians, by economists, by central bankers. And then, and this is very interesting, is we have, as I say, this five millennia of history. And you see, you know, you see periods of interest rates changing, they coming down and, and, and going up at times, but really they are within a certain bound. Um, very early Mesopotamian interest rates were, as I mentioned, I think 33 or 3% for the grain loans. Um, so that's very high. Um, and they, I think, I'm right in saying that they, I think they might have gone down below two percent um, in in Holland mm -hmm. in the late eighteenth uh, century. Let's say, so you've got a bound. Now go into the go into the twenties go into the twenty twentieth century. 
going to the age of paper money. You get in Germany in the 1920s, during the hyperinflation, uh, in interest rates up to five figures. So you get it into, into, into the tens of thousands. And then you see that again in um, South America, uh, Brazil, I think Argentina, also up into the tens of thousands. And then, and this is in a way why I wrote the book, is in the last decade, we get an interest rate of zero set by the central banks. And then you get interest rates of less than zero in Europe from ECB, the uh, Danish Central Bank and the Riksbank in Sweden, and also in um, also in Japan. So you you got I think it's something like eight hundred million people were living in countries with negative interest rates. Now we had never seen negative interest rates in history. Now, if you accept my argument, which you know obviously I think is irrefutable, <laughs> that interest is a sort of human phenomenon is necessary, has always existed, then to do away with interest or, or to turn it negative is really an extraordinary thing to do. Now, as you you know, you mentioned the title of my book, The Price of Time. Interest puts a price on time. Ben Franklin says here, time is money, time is valuable, time is man's most precious possession. So what is a negative interest rate? A negative interest rate is a negative value on time. And that would be like having a watch that actually moves counterclockwise, in which you're actually moving back in time. It, it, it's, it's an extraordinary thing if you think deeply about it. And my argument is that people who, who, um, who originated these negative rates just simply didn't think what they were doing. It, 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 they, had, they had not grasped the enormity of what they were dealing with. And that, you know, obviously that, that is in itself a really interesting story. Sorry to interrupt, wanted to let you know about BlockWorks upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September, 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are going to be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE20. That's GUIDANCE20. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. And what were the goals of central bankers who lowered interest rates to zero, or in the case of Europe and Japan, to below zero? Why was zero not enough for them? Was it just that they wanted to stimulate the economy and the economy was still in recession? So they said, hey, if zero will stimulate the economy and it's not enough, we got to go below zero. Um, it wasn't really just a question of stimulating the economy. They, As I point out in the book, the central bankers around the world become fixated with inflation targeting. And the uh, inflation target that was generally accepted was 2%. And they had a horror of deflation, uh, of falling prices. Now, again, as I argue in the book, deflation, falling prices, you know, is what makes people better off. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, if you have some money in your pocket and your stuff is cheaper, the car is cheaper, your washing machine is cheaper, your computer is cheaper, you think, great. Yeah, well, that's not how the central bankers looked at it. The central bankers took a very narrow uh, problem with deflation, which is, and this it's not only narrow, it's actually theoretical. It, and when I say it's theoretical, it's not even quite clear that it actually means anything in the real world. That's what I mean by theoretical. So there is this famous paper written by 
great economist called Irving Fisher in the in 1933, I think, uh, called the Debt Deflation Theory of Great Depressions. And what Fisher says then is that um, you know, in a you know, in a world in a banking world when people paid back their loans, uh, the uh, banks create less money, and when they create less money, the price level falls. And what could, can happen? And I'm saying this is theoretical. It's not. It's not. You know, is, is what could happen then is that through the act of paying back your loan, the money supply might contract, and the price level falls. So you would actually end up owing, in theory, more than you started to um, than you owed before you paid back the money, which obviously is not a very good thing, particularly if you know, everyone's doing that and the banks start and, and you know, people who owe money start going bankrupt. Uh, but so that that is a theoretical position. But in fact, actually, historically, <laughs> it's complete nonsense. You know, the the throughout the most of the 19th century, we had, you know, booms and busts in the 19th century, but, but throughout the second half of the 19th century, prices are continually falling. And... Um, and people were getting the working persons were better off uh, with falling prices. Anyhow, there was this horror of deflation, and there was this horror of missing the two percent inflation target. So the moment inflation, the you know the recent print on inflation went sort of anywhere close to two percent or just below two percent, then they said, okay, hang on, say you know let's take our interest rates down to zero. And if that's not enough, we'll take them down to negative. And if that's not enough, we'll um, engage in quantitative easing. And if that's not enough, we'll we'll do any number of different things, that, you know, little tricks that we can get up to. Um, but I, my own view was that actually, um, and as I make it clear in the book, it's a nature of a capitalist economy uh, to innovate, to improve, uh, to generate productivity gains. And left to their own devices, productivity gains will give you deflation. They'll give you falling prices. It's what we, you know, think of Moore's law and semiconductors. Yeah, I mean, do you imagine if the central bankers, if we only had one thing in the world, a semiconductor, and deflation of semiconductors is, you know, really a terrible thing. Well, you can imagine the amount of money they would have had to print in order to prevent the price level of a semiconductor from falling. Well, you know, they would have been, you know, according to Moore's, I can't quite remember whether they have to be doubling the money supply every, was it, year or so. I mean, say, anyhow, I mean, say, I, you know, I, think it, I think it was misbegotten, and I think it was misbegotten because the uh, modern central bankers uh, are theoretical uh, monetary economists uh, who, with, you know, Little or no experience, <laughs> no banking experience. It's, it's remarkable that you know, during the global financial crisis, at the time of the Lehman bus, there was not, it, for the first time in history, there was not a single person on the Federal Open Markets Committee, the interest rate setting committee, the key committee of the Fed, not a single person with banking experience. You had, you know, Ben Bernanke, the former head of economics at, I think, Princeton. You had um, this guy, Fred Mishkin, who was, you know, who was actually on holiday, believe it or not, skiing. <laughs> the rest of us were like, <laughs> working in the financial world, we're going, yeah, this is, you You weren't leaving your desk. This, this professor of economics was off on a skiing holiday, had apparently had to sort of put in his vote on a, on a cell phone, because he's, had so little understanding of what's going on. Anyhow, there we are. I mean, that's, you know, well. I can definitely tell you from my experience that many people in the Fed who have very senior positions are, are basically there as lifers. It's, it's largely a tenure-driven system. Joseph, I mentioned that the, you know, the Fed itself is the largest employer of, of, of um, monetary economist PhDs. And then the Wall Street Journal did a sort of amusing... Um, uh, poll or published an amusing poll after the financial crisis, in which you know they asked they asked you know the general public uh, did was the Fed in any way responsible for the um, for you know for for the global financial crisis and you know the low interest the easy money of the Greenspan area and so on, 
And the general public said, yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> and <laughs> they, they asked the monetary economists, they said, oh, no, no, the Fed did nothing wrong. And it, so it's that, uh, you know, they, it, it's problematic uh, that, that, the, that in a way the Fed and all the central banks have become major employers of, um, you know, of the, um, of the so-called ex-monetary experts, because what that, creates is you know, is is groupthink and uh, you know anyone who with a dissonant view uh, obviously um you know gets has to leave you know yeah so what they often teach uh, let's say in economist school is often you know an, an interesting idea but there's often a big gap between how the world actually works and what they teach and if you you know go to economist school and you work on the street or in the city you realize that but then if you say in a central bank your, your whole career that you don't. That was nicely expressed by the by Fisher Black, who was you know great economist who died I don't know twenty odd years ago, and he, I think Fisher Black was at MIT, and then he went to Goldman's, and <laughs> Fisher Black said, the world looks the markets look much less efficient. Uh, by the banks of the Hudson than they do by the banks of the Charles. So if your you know, MIT office is overlooking the Charles River and you've never actually sort of muddied your hands in finance, you can create you can create these you know models of rational expectations and so on and so forth, uh, equilibrium and so on. Where at the moment you go into the real world, you you realise that stuff is a bit more um, a bit more um, topsy turvy. Having said that. You're probably aware that you know Bill Dudley, who was the um, president of New York Fed, you know, did come from Goldman's, and there is, and there is one aspect of monetary policy, which isn't entirely um, to you know a problem monetary policy, which is not entirely to do with theory, which is I think that sort of the um, central bank policy became captured. By the interests of Wall Street, sort of mediated through the likes of Bill Dudley, not necessarily consciously, but it, you know, if you read, um, you know, the, uh, the the FOMC meeting notes, and it was in in the immediate period of the post crisis period, it's Dudley who's always warning about the danger of you know financial instability, and you know, if you remember after. You know, we were told that these zero interest rates were going to be a short-term phenomenon. They were just to deal with the aftermath of Lehman, and you know they um, and and this was just lender of last resort activity. Um, and then they, you know they went on until last year. <laughs> so actually, you know, it was almost it was you know a full business cycle, more than an average length business cycle of of, of negative of zero rates and quantitative easing, and the rationale. Often, you know, after, was always really. I mean, it was a bit to do with lowering inflation, but if you read the notes, it's always to do with oh, you know, if, if we keep, we're seeing prob- problems with, I don't know, in the plumbing of the financial system, with, uh, or, or we're seeing problems in Europe. I mean, we, you know, we just they always find another reason to loosen, and, and that, and by remaining loose. For very long, and this, as you know, is sort of one of the arguments of my book, is they actually create these asset price bubbles and create this leverage and this yield chasing, this risk taking activity that always gives. And having created this monster of fragility, they, they then also gives them an excuse to continue remaining loose. And they would, you know, they would definitely have remained. At zero forever, unless inflation had had come along. To your point, Edward, I think there's a lot of news right now suggesting that you know some politicians and are suggesting that maybe the inflation target could be moved higher, which is of course another justification to, to not hike interest rates or or maybe lower them again. Now, earlier you mentioned that there's this big shift to an inflation targeting framework that basically uh, dictates how the central banks raise their. Um, set their interest rates. And we had a huge anomaly where rates were largely negative for a period of time. And obviously, in the absence of a central bank, it's hard to think of anyone 
would lend to someone at negative interest rates. It's really bizarre. I mean, you can be quite categorical. Is a negative interest rate is a tax on capital. So you would stuff your money under, you know, in a safe or under your bed and have your capital tax. And that that's actually what we saw in Japan and Germany is, you know, when rates, the, the rates were not actually charged on consumer lenders, uh, but they were charged on the banks themselves. And, and I think, you know, one of the large German banks, Commerce Banks, did actually start hoarding uh, notes in safes. And, and in Japan, actually, there was a, when negative rates were announced, there was a sort of uh, massive sales of, of, of safes, of domestic safes. So, yes, uh, it, categorically, uh, you would not have, um, you could not have negative rates coming about uh, in, you know, except under, you know, under central authority, central planning. One of the favorite charts in your in your book, Edward, is the U-shaped interest rate curve over time. That is to say that in ancient Rome and in ancient Greece, in the beginning, interest rates are high, and then they gradually lower and lower uh, in correspondence to the rise in power of the civilization. And then afterwards, the interest rates kind of go high again, like a, like a U-shaped. And, you know, when you look at what's happening in, in the world today, we were or interest rates were high, they've been low, 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 low to negative for a period of time, and now they're rising again. What do you think is like the fundamental underpinning between this U-curve that we've seen in the past uh, with other civilizations? When a civilization establishes itself, um, it, it, first of all, there will be, in the early days, there'll be more risk um, because it's not secure, and uh, there will be relatively few savings surplus you know savings is after all the surplus of a society and there will be very relatively few institutions banks call them what you will what you will to intermediate those the savings that exist so look if we all were to say we had a little bit of surplus let's say we're grain surplus for one vote and we kept you know we just kept it at home well, then, then the cost of borrowing the grain would be, you know, over time and repaying it would be relatively high. So the moment you have middlemen, you know, bankers lending money, then you're going to get interest rates coming down. And, and then so and then when a civilization established and secure, then you get the sort of bottom of, of, of the of the um, U shape. And then as it collapses, well then, you know, then you get more risk <laughs> because the civilization is is on its last legs, and you get fewer savings, and probably the intermediaries start failing, and so you get this U shape, and you know the, the U shape that period is is indeterminate. Um, so, um, and what I say is in the book is you know <laughs> we've been living through the lowest interest rates in history, so you do see a bit of a U shape. It's not really comforting. The other thing I say in the book, which I think is important, it's not my own, I, not a point I made myself. I got it from you know, the great history of interest rates by Sidney Homer, which is that people always think that the interest rates they experience are normal, and then they're always surprised by the interest rates that come next. So <laughs> we, we, you know, it's very difficult to predict the, the direction of interest rates. It's very difficult to predict these cycles because, you know, we have, as I mentioned in the book, uh, 30 to 40 year periods of declining long-term rates and then sort of similar length period of rising rates. It's very difficult to make the call on that. I mean, I, I think I actually have to say, I think I, I, I did, having, you know, worked on this subject for such a long time, by, uh, by 21, I, you know, by 2021, I sort of could see that we were at the cusp of a, uh, of a change in the interest rate cycle. But it was very easy to be early on that one. Um, so we, we, you know, I don't know where the interest rate's going now. I just know that, even I, who spent years thinking about it, 
I'm going to be surprised. And if I'm going to be surprised, you can be sure as hell <laughs> that, you know, that you know, everyone else is going to be really surprised. And, and look, think about, and we'll perhaps get on to it in a moment, but over the last you know, year and a half, not quite a year and a half, year and a quarter, let's say, uh, interest rates started to rise. And that has taken a lot of people by surprise. So, you know, take, I mean, the most obvious case being Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which had, you know, ha- had this great inflow of deposits during the sort of last gasp of the um, bench capital boom in 2020, 21, poor old Silicon Valley, you know, money pouring into it, you know, the VC guys coming with sort of sacks of cash. Saying, you know, <laughs> and, 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 um, and they didn't know, you know, and, you know, the Fed funds rate was zero. And so they said, you know, they were, and they you know, they were trying to be good. <laughs> they, they will buy risk-free U.S. treasuries. And the trouble is the risk-free U.S. treasuries at that time were at the lowest, the, let's say the 10-year yield was at the lowest level in history. And, you know, nature banking, you gear everything up. So they just had a, you know, a geared leverage position in 10-year treasuries. I'm not saying that I I didn't know if they had 10-year treasuries, but long date, longer dated uh, US treasury. And that was, they must have assumed that uh, interest rates would remain low and that therefore they wouldn't have capital losses on those treasuries. And if you remember back in 2020, Jay Powell, the Fed chairman, said, I'm not even thinking about <laughs> thinking about raising interest rates. So you could see that if you were a sort of CFO um, and in char- or in charge of the sort of the bank's um, books, you might have thought you were being reasonably prudent in what you were doing. And it actually turns out that you, that you along with Jay Powell and everyone else, had had not known the direction which interest rates were going. Edward, going back to just sort of the theme of John Bull can't stand 2%, you mentioned venture capital. Can you talk about the pro- proliferation of investments that really boomed uh, from 2009 until basically now? Uh, private equity, venture capital, growth-based equities, uh, maybe some fixed income strategies that work well when interest rates are at zero. How uh, much do you attribute the success and the proliferation of those investment strategies to low interest rates? Well, I mean, I would distinguish VC from private equity for stuff. Um, I mean, v- private equity, I think, is a bit more straightforward um, because, uh, I mean, again, private equity is a fairly big business. But let's just let's imagine private equity is just you know the old-fashioned buyout. Business. Well, the, the old-fashioned buyout business is, is is you know financial engineering, where you replace equity w- with debt, and 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 then uh, and the idea is that um, as long as you can borrow uh, cheaply enough, uh, you 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 can uh, you can lever up a business and in time pay back the debt and 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 sell your business. Uh, at a profit. I think you know, the private equity business kicks off in 1982. Uh, former Treasury Secretary Bill Simon's uh, leveraged purchase of Gibson Greetings, which is a card company. And I think, you know, I can't remember. I think Simon himself turned his $750 thousand dollar investment into 80 million it was it, but for the investors it was hugely profitable and really um the private equity guys you know they're more like corporate finances or investment bankers than traditional investment guys it, it's all about how much debt can we put i'm look i'm just talking about the lba it's not some of the other stuff um and so i think that is you know that entire business was um you know grew it developed on this long, you know, during this long four, 40 decade um, bond bull market of ever declining rates of interest. And then and, you know, what you saw at the end was, you know, higher, com- the buyout industry was putting, you know, more debt relative to, you know, to operating cash flow to EBITDA 
I think the industry average, you know, let's say, eight to nine times which is historic high. And they and as I mentioned in the book, at the same time, the loans that were being put out were advantageous to the lenders because they didn't have covenants. And that sort of it, it, the, the so-called covenant-like loans means that the creditors um, you know, don't get to take the company back uh, because of their loose on covenants, which actually it's it's they're basically like um like giving a a sort of free call option to the uh, buyout people, to the borrower. So there's hugely advantageous. And then you throw in the facts I point out in the book that, you know, uh, that the low interest rates also feed, you know, general asset price inflation. So you can see, you you know, cheaper funding and asset price inflation. How's private equity, you know, not going to make money under those conditions? And... um, yeah, and, and I suppose my view is is that that, that party is over, um, and you know, and so anyhow, so that's one part of the story. The VC business, venture capital, slightly different, uh, but also affected by the low interest rates, and I would say in, in two ways. One is that is to go back to Walter Badger, you know. If the if your returns on your tried and trusted investments are, are not what they were, then you must venture more. You must be less safe. And you know, obviously, a venture capital business is less safe. And so you will you you get this flow of money into into technology. And the other is um, to do with you know, the discount rate. Uh, if if you apply a low uh, discount rate to a business, venture capital business, whose whose profits lie you know some ten twenty years in the future, well, the low discount rate will inflate it, its uh, value, its residual value. And so your asset will be worth more. So you've got more money coming in to assets that can plausibly be be valued at a higher level. And then you know you've got these frothy bull markets where the game is really with VC to ratchet up the pre-market valuations. Uh, most of the speculation really is taking place off market, which is sort of, to my mind, is is a sort of First time I've ever seen it. You know, I've never read about it in other other markets. Normally, you know, the, the, uh, normally these venture capital businesses go to market as quickly as possible. But here, you know, with the Ubers of this world, with the WeWorks of this world, they were being ratcheted up, and then eventually, when they were sort of fully multi-billion value, it was an attempt to throw them on the wretched investors in the market. That slightly changed right at the end with the SPAC. Boom, whereas you know these um, these um, very um, what do you want to call them conceptual uh, fraudulent <laughs> <very> <laughs> conceptual. <laughs> fraudulently conceptual businesses were being uh, you know were were being um, quickly uh, spun into you know, into these special purpose acquisition companies and places on the market. So, so one of the things that we saw in this low interest rate was the, the giant boom in VCs and so forth. And uh, one of the proponents, some of the proponents of a low interest rate policy would talk about how if you have low interest rates, you can fuel all sorts of investments. That's really great for progress and, and so forth. But in your book, you make you take another view that, that I found really interesting in that low interest rates can actually uh, decrease productivity growth and actually lead to slower economic growth. Can you tell us a little bit how that might work, that mechanism? Oh. Yes, I mean, first of all, we have to just go back to the point you know I made already that capital is scarce, and you know so it's it's sort of you know, better for the economy for society that every every dollar is carefully invested and well allocated. You can have a an a, uh, you know, speculative boom, and and it funds a whole load of ventures, and it may be that you know a few of those ventures come out of it 
robustly and have a future. But, you know, it seems to me often the case that the vast majority of money is simply wasted. I, I think, you know, if you look at the great tech successes of the last you know, 40 years in America, you know, the, the Cisco's and Microsoft's and Intel's, not, not, none of those businesses came to market to inspect it, but nor did Google actually. I mean, Google, Google came to market, I can't remember, it's 2003 or thereabouts, perhaps it was even a bit later than that. Um, perhaps it was, yeah, 2003, four. Uh, you know, I suppose, you know, think of the first crop of dot coms. The only name that really sticks out is, is Amazon. Um, the rest of them, pretty, you know, I think by and large were failures. Um, so I think that I think that's problematic. Although, you know, I don't completely write off the idea that that, that there is something <laughs> that there is something natural about a speculative mania or bubble in in a new technology that does encourage. A huge amount of innovation, and I think you could you could even apply that to the crypto stuff. I mean, as you know in the book, I'm I'm fairly you know dubious about cryptos, and I do I actually you know I do say even I think in the last you know paragraph that there's you know that while crypto may be an answer to the terrible problem setting interest, and that the, the crypto market you know world seemed to be. From what one heard, were you know beset with pyramid schemes and so on. And you know, lo and behold, what do we get? The, you know, the crypto winter with all these, um, you know, all these pyramid operators, pyramid scheme operators, uh, going bust. Um, so in, there may be some function for for spectre bubbles in bringing forward new technology, uh, but by and large, capital is wasted. Um, with regards to low productivity. Um, I mean, my argument is that uh, at very low interest rates, uh, you dampen the paces of creative destruction. You allow you know, the converse of the of the unicorn is the zombie company. The unicorn, in a way, is like Icarus. It flies, it flies to the um, too close to the sun, and then it's its feathers burn off and it sinks down. The, the zombie is 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 just you know it lives in the great in the corporate graveyard, but it it should be dead, but it isn't dead. And and one of the functions of interest <laughs> is to slay zombies. Yeah, I mean that's what's interesting. All you have to do is to turn the heat up on the zombies, and they will kill over. It's pretty easy actually. But if you keep interest rates at zero, um, and I think in Europe. Believe it or not, you, there were even high yield companies, companies with low credit, which are actually issuing bonds with negative yields. So you were actually—I mean, I don't know if those were technically zombies, but you—you know—you were in a way you're subsidising inefficiency, and if you're subsidising inefficiency, and you and the zombies don't die, you um, you diminish the creative destruction. In an economy, and you diminish creative destruction, which, which you know the Austrian economist, Harvard economist Joseph Schumpeter said was the most important feature of a capitalist economy. And, and bear in mind, you know, um, you know, Silicon Valley loves Schumpeter; they love creative destruction. Um, of course, the Silicon Valley also loves easy money. <laughs> well, they love; they're all libertarian. They're all libertarian, except when their bank goes down. Yeah, they're all lib- yeah, except in a banking crisis, uh, they they're libertarian on paper. Um, they there would just be many fewer of them, as we see. You know that the startup is a low interest rate phenomenon. Or as remember, I cite Jim Grant saying uh, that unicorns. A little known fact that unicorns feed on interest. The lower, <laughs> the lower they like them, the lower the better. But anyhow, go back to the zombies. Is that if you misallocate capital and trap it in low return businesses, then you and you do that enough, you will affect productivity for an economy. You dampen creative destruction, you'll get no productivity. And you know, that's you know, that is obviously a problem because you know, as I said towards the end of the book, you know, that the buy-in to capitalism, you know, system based on you know whatever you want to call it, greed, inequality, whatever, 
it, it, the buy-in is that you know it it lifts you know the rising tide lifts all boats but if the tide doesn't rise the tide you know gently ebbs out then you know people are going to be dissatisfied which is clearly the case hey there sorry to interrupt a lot of forward guidance listeners are not into crypto if that's you Please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Right, you challenge in the book the argument that high interest rates or non-zero interest rates help wealthy people because they're the ones who have all the money, so they should be you know making loans and they uh, their return will be higher. But you make the point that actually uh, so many wealthy uh, individuals and companies in America and around the world are actually immense borrowers who are uh, you know short capital, not not long capital, and if you know they own a lot of stocks, not a lot of uh, uh, bonds and those values skyrocket when interest rates decline. Yeah, I mean, look, I, and the point I think the point I make is that those who who have the who you know who are closest to Wall Street have the lowest borrowing costs in an age of financial engineering and in you know asset price inflation. The, those people will do best. I mean, I, I, I remember back in I don't know twenty fourteen. A friend of mine, ex, you know, retired hedge fund guy, you know, rich guy, you know, he he said he and a you know bunch of his people had you know bought some, I don't remember what it was, a local telecoms business, or whatever, and they'd levered it up, you know, they, they were with non recourse loans, and and they were going to make tons of money. There was no way that they weren't going to make tons of money, and out, you know, and if they weren't, <laughs> they didn't make tons of money. The bank, the loans, anyhow, weren't recourse to them. So it it, it was. It was just, you know, it was very sweet if you were the right person in the right place. Now, you know, if you don't have very much money, then, you know, you're, you have to keep more, a greater share of your savings on deposit because, you know, we all, you know, all of us worry about our, you know, worry that, you know, our stream of income, our jobs or whatever, in my case, freelance income, you know, might get, terminated or something you know affected so you you know you need to keep some precautionary savings and precautionary savings if you're less well off are a much larger portion of your total wealth and therefore you suffer proportionately much more at the low interest rates and and as i mentioned in the book you know the the back the low interest rates after the lehman bust actually coincided with the banks ratcheting up the rate of interest on their on their loans to individuals to less credit worthy in, individuals and as you know as for you know, credit card charges it, you know they still remain that they're i don't know they're 24 25 api completely unaffected so yeah I, I mean the the whole thing was um was you know it, it wasn't deliberately geared because i mean it, one would almost um one almost prefer it if it was deliberately geared, like I'm just gonna help, you know, the private. It was just done without thinking. Um, but the low, I, I've been reading a book. Um, I read a book last week by some by this Russian American uh, political scientist called Peter Turchin. Does it, does that mean anything to you? So Turchin, it looks what. His, his study of what he calls clear dynamics, a sort of quant history, if you will. And he says that, you know, that there are these periods of, you know, rising inequality and, and, and that end in what he calls elite overproduction. You know, many people oh, yeah, are yeah, yeah. fighting. And 
he says that that comes about because there's a what he calls a wealth pump. And the wealth pump is pumping from the poor, taking it. Or he also calls it the Matthew effect, which and I think I use that that line from um you know from Matthew that you know to the rich shall be given and the poor shall be taken away. And Turchin says it's the wealth pump working that um that creates this uh this long period of inequality and elite overproduction, which then takes the society into a position of, of you know, imminent crisis. And Turchin thinks that that's where we are today. And I argue that that wealth pump was the very low interest rates. And, and the, the people who designed the wealth pump, put it into place, just didn't understand the nature of the machine that they had created and were in constant denial about it. They, they, you, if you read any of the commentary of, of the central bankers on inequality over the last decade or so, you can see that they are sort of aggressively in denial. And Joseph, you remember there's another, I think my favorite chart in the book is the one in which I show that um, I think it's income inequality of the Top one percent of the U.S. population for moving inversely, moving with total returns of of U.S. Treasuries, which is really saying that as it, interest rates came down over the last forty years, that that interest that that inequality that there was a you know a strong connection. I'm not saying causal connection, but you can make an argument as I do that that they are linked. And if you remember, I what I argue. Is you know there's a famous uh, Thomas Piketty formula that mm. when the rate of RG, return, yeah. uh, when R is greater than G that that higher inequality, and I say that you know Piketty you've got the you know, typical academic economy has got things completely the wrong way around. It's when R the rate of interest is below G that you get rising inequality. There's your wealth pump. We saw it in the Gilded Age in the U.S. in the late 19th century, falling interest rates of you know, financialization, the creation of these monopolies, like the you know, US Steel and so on. And we see it again, you know, the creation of monopolies, cartels, of financialization, and so forth. So we've been, you know, Turchin says we've been living through a second gilded age. And the two thing the thing that connects both of them were these long periods of declining rates. It says <laughs> the bad news is that the rates were even lower, you know, uh, most recently. And so how do you determine uh how high rates can go if if it's clear that zero rates have a whole host of consequences how do you determine what is a sufficiently high interest rate that society would not want to go above because it would be too high people wouldn't borrow enough money uh, you know the economy would enter a recession well you can, i mean that depends on any number of different factors i mean the the and i think you know look it's clear, I think we all agree that central, you know, it's difficult to know the relationship between the interest rate and um and and inflation and 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 how how ratcheting up you know the impact of raising rates and inflation uh it it, it can happen with time lag and it varies over you know over with any number of different Facts. I mean, one point that a friend of mine in a piece was writing this week is that you know in the in the days when we had you know relatively closed economies, it's sort of much the, the relationship between interest rate and overheating and bringing the economy down uh, was quite straightforward. Now, it's, now you know, I have to say it, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, my argument in the book is that. Interest rates have gone down and down and down, and wealth has gone up and up and up, and debt has gone up and up and up, and the, therefore the system is much more um, sensitive to rising interest rates. And I'd say that you know, I, what I handed in the book, you know, to the publisher beginning of last year, and. Before the Fed had raised rates, and and I'd say to some extent, you know, my argument has been vindicated, but not a hundred percent. And because if you were going to say, you know, 
if you're going to say take my argument um, full face, you know, take it through. I, I'm saying that the system is very resistant to rising interest rates, and that the system can fail. A highly financialized system can fail at very low rates of interest. Now, you know, US and UK. UK is you know absolutely basket case in many ways, but it's still, you know, the UK is a sort of zombie economy, but it's still sort of trudging on. And, and but, you know, for how much longer? You know, I, I don't know. So I, I'm, I, my view is that already interest rates are too high. Oh. You know, yeah, my, my, rate, my view is that rates are too high to sustain the system. Mm-hmm. You know, the system cannot survive with such high rates. So in a way, uh, under that view, you'd see the recovery of the markets this year. I can't remember when they turned in October of last year, but relatively you know, very strong recovery of the markets in, in January. And you've got you know, resurgence of speculation because you know, we talked about VC and even though you've had you know, a you know, downturn in Silicon Valley, all those SPACs, and not all of them, but you know, by and large. I, an AI company just got uh, a four billion dollar valuation, and it's a few years old. Yeah, exactly. And, and you've got, um, and is it Nvidia? You know, trade tr- trading trillion dollar company. I don't know how many. It's a hundred times sales. I don't know. You tell me. It's pretty speculative, and we're back in the fear of missing out. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it looked, and so Joseph. You know, worked briefly, briefly as intern at GMA, where I used to work, and my old boss, um, Jeremy Grantham, his view is that we're in just a a classic bear market rally, and that it won't last. And 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 that's you know, yeah, that's my view, really. That that I would you know, look, I mean, the one nice thing about both working as a historian and working con- as a contemporary you know, in the contemporary financial world and investment world is, you know, one is constantly surprised and constantly <laughs> wrong. So I, you don't you want to take what I say with a pinch of salt. But I, my my hunch is that, that we you know we're not anywhere near over with this. You know, the, and and I, I am, I have to say, I'm pretty surprised that, um, you know, that the US, UK, and not in recession now. If, if you'd asked me, you know, beginning of last year, I don't really like making predictions about GDP and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you'd asked me, if you know, if interest rates start to ratchet up to this, would I think these countries were going to be in recession? I'd say, yeah, probably. So I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm I'm still waiting for a shoe to drop, but we'll see. And if, if you think that Edward. So many people must think that as well, because you you literally wrote a book about <laughs> the consequences, <laughs> negative consequences, often of of negative of zero interest rates. And so, even you know, having written that book, you actually think that five point two five percent might be a little bit too high in the U.S. or or uh, in in Britain or the or yeah, it's Britain. Let's say I'm Britain. We've got five percent bank rate. Now that is actually one point below the long term. Post-war average of bank rate, the the Bank of England's rate uh, at five percent interest, the average UK household uh, has so much debt now, given the inflated house price, that that five percent really translates into, I'm saying roughly fifteen or sixteen percent back in the early nineteen. 80s when households had one third as much debt. So you can see that a 5% rate in this country is um, is pretty painful. And it's rough. And in terms of household income uh, going on, on, on mortgage payments, back to where Britain was in 89 at the end of a housing boom, we had a like three or four year housing bust quite quite a deep recession and we've also had this this week which is interesting one of the water utilities thames water biggest water utility 50 million customers 
heavily financially engineered, 14 billion of debt on 1 billion of cash flow. <laughs> and, you know, it's about to go bust. So the, the, these are, these are, these things, uh, these are things anyhow that I look out for to say, well, is, is it over? And I, I think not. I, I think that, I think that, um, well, we'll see. I, I just think that, that either I think the central bank's going to have to start loosening pretty, pretty, and if they don't, I think that they pursue a narrow inflation target. In other words, obsess about the two percent inflation target. They will really find themselves uh, like the central banks, you know, under the gold standard, which blamed for the Great Depression, where they, you know, the Fed had in I think it, in um, I can't remember what it was late. Was it late thirty one, forced to raise rates because you know to to maintain the gold standard and that being blamed for creating the um, you know the banking crisis. So we'll we'll, we'll see, but I, I think it's difficult. We will see. Well, Edward, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your insights, talking about the book. Of course, the book is the price of time. And you know, for people who said, "Oh, I, I listened to this interview. I know what the book's about, so I don't have to, to read it." They are totally wrong. Uh, there is so so many gems in here, and so they should check that out. And also, um, your your uh, one of your previous books, "Devil Takes the High Most," which I read, is also fantastic. So, folks, should check that out. Edward, thanks so much for joining us. Joseph, thanks for uh, uh, joining us as well. And thank you everyone for watching. Bye then. Forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.